with respect to Jenny Greenteeth. Well do I remember in childhood's days an isolated Gorton farmstead with a yeoman's house dating back to the early part of the 17th century. Almost overshading it was a somber old yew tree, doubtless coeval, but then beginning to decay. The end was being hastened by the annual yuletide custom of lopping off the branches in order to decorate the tiny, leaden-casemented windows then existing in the house, and also in a chapel hard by the green of a neighboring village. Lying at some depth beneath the grassy hillock on which the fine old tree had so long stood sentinel was a deep, dismal pool, which had sometime been excavated as a marl pit. Of course, little lads and lasses, with no other playmates than themselves, would now and then, when other pastimes had been run through, amuse themselves by sailing mimic flats and boats in order to deter them from approaching so dangerous a spot when caught upon the steps leading down to the lading hole, an anxious mother would affirm solemnly, as we then thought, that Jenny Greenteeth was artfully lurking in the waters below. Proof of the story was afforded to our unsophisticated minds by the exhibition of a set of human teeth enameled with green tartar. These were said to bear only a faint resemblance to those of the demoness below, who with her long, sinewy arms first drew children in and then devoured them. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I'm so excited it's October. Yes, we are into our uh, our October offerings here. Uh, a full month of, uh, of, of Halloween-flavored content. Monster Science, a whole month. It's, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I think I say that every year. It is. Now, granted, we do let a few other monsters, uh, you know, uh, leak out and crawl out uh, during the rest of the year. But, but we do set aside a number of different topics just for this month's celebration. So that passage that I read at the beginning of the episode was from a letter by a folklorist named John Higson, an English folklorist from Lees who chronicles stories of fairies and boggarts, uh, and it was published in Notes and Queries, a medium of intercommunication for literary men, general readers, etc., from Oxford University Press in 1870. And uh, I'm going to be quoting a little bit more from Higson's work. But as you may have detected from that passage, today we're going to be focusing on a particular malicious water spirit, a, a, a sodden hag, a fairy of the depths named Ginny Greenteeth who will pull you in. Yes, to uh, invoke one of my favorite clickhole videos, if you don't follow the rules, Ginny Greenteeth will kill you with her sharp fangs. <laughs> and I love knowing that. <laughs> Now, there are a couple of ways that you could classify Ginny Greenteeth, like what category she goes in. I guess one would be to say that she's part of this, this class of bogies and boggarts and uh, Higson's term fairin, frightful things, the sort of uh, English or, or UK tradition of frightful spirits. Yes, uh, yeah, nursery bogies. Uh, that's uh, certainly the term that uh, folklorist Carol Rose uses in uh, her 
her encyclopedias of various uh, magical creatures, including giants, monsters, and dragons. I think the nursery bogey categorization was applied by the folklorist Catherine Briggs, who mm-hmm. does a lot on English fairies. And the nursery bogey, bogeys specifically were bogeys that were invoked to frighten children, often with an instructive angle. And it seems like they, they wouldn't usually have much in the way of, of real uh, mythic roots beyond their role as a, you know, an, an educational and instructional entity. But on the other hand, they very much could have roots. They could mm-hmm. have inspirations because uh, water hags like Ginny Greenteeth are not unique to the British Isles. They're not unique to uh, – Ginny Greenteeth especially, we will discuss, seems to be situated in like northern England, especially northwest England around Liverpool and Lancashire. Yeah, and we'll, we'll reference a, a few of her kin that live in the, the area as well as some of her more distant relatives that uh, live elsewhere. But it does make – I, I did – I kept wondering as as I was looking at these different examples, some of which that were very much just a, a folkloric nursery bogey and others that had more of a mythic air about them. You wonder like to what extent is a particular nursery bogey a stripped-down version of some older, deeper mythological um, – creature mm-hmm. or is it something entirely new or mostly new? I feel like there's probably a, a little bit of both. There's probably an ebb and flow uh, that can be found there. If the nursery bogey is a horrific schoolhouse rock video, is it inspired <laughs> by something horrific from the past that is having – that is being somewhat tamed or bent to the will of the warning instructive parent? Indeed, indeed. So let's, let's go back to Carol Rose. What, what does Rose have to say about old Jenny? All right, so uh, Rose wrote that uh, Ginny Grinteeth is an evil, quote, predator of humans and in particular awaits the unwary child who may go too close to the water. So you get too close and she'll come at you with her long green fangs then she'll pull you into the depths and uh, she can haunt uh, virtually any pond that's covered in green slime. Uh, And again, she's, of course, a nursery bogey, a, a, a monster used to instruct children and enforce a wide variety of rules. For example, uh, another bogey that uh, that exists out there is uh, the red-legged scissor man. Uh, and there's a delightful, grotesque rhyme about the red-legged scissor man. And essentially, if you suck your thumb, um, the red-legged scissor man will come and cut off your thumbs. Ooh. Which is terrifying. But you see, it's very much just a, a monster that's made up to scare children out of doing something they're not supposed to do. But then with Ginny Green Teeth, the stakes are much higher. This isn't about prevention, preventing uh, uh, you know, thumb sucking. This is about preventing a child from wandering too close to the water, falling in and drowning. Now, as we go through the episode, I think we will steadily learn more and more about exactly what that water threat is. Or uh, sometimes Ginny is deployed in ways that have nothing to do with water, though clearly her home is in the water. Mm-hmm. She, she is a water fairy, a water hag. Yeah, I can't help but think of what is it, Meg Mucklebones from uh, the uh, the Ridley Scott uh, uh, filmed Legend. Exactly, I think Meg Mucklebones is directly inspired by Jenny. She mm-hmm. she's got to be. Yeah, yeah, just the grotesque uh, hag like monstrosity, this troll like creature, this loathsome entity that rises up out of the swampy muck. Now, I want to continue with what Higson wrote, which was published in uh, in that Notes and Queries in 1870, uh, where he's talking about uh, the role of Ginny Greenteeth in, in English folklore. Picking up where my first quote left off, he says that some of their pits in the lo- 
locality, and this is generally going to be talking about northwest England, in the locality were likely patronized by a Jenny Green teeth. And in my Gorton Historical Recorder, published in 1852, there are briefly noticed a dozen places in the township, once supposed to be haunted with Boggarts and Feyren. In addition, there were Nut Nans, <laughs> Clap Cans, Wills with the Wisp. There's oh, we know them. Oh, yeah. And Will of the Wisp's buddy, Jack with the Lantern. Lantern or Lanthorn, it seems to be spelled. And Peg with the Iron Teeth. And uh, lastly, which is more to the point, he says, quote, to restrain their children from venturing too near the numerous pits and pools, which were to be found in every fold and field, a demoness or guardian was stated to crouch at the bottom. She was known as Jenny Greenteeth and was reported to prey upon children who ventured too near her domain. Sometimes the water demoness was termed Grindylo. This incarnation, of course, uh, might be more familiar to fans of Harry Potter. Oh, do they invoke uh, Grindylow or the Grindylow as I've seen it written? Yeah, Rowling mentions Grindylows. I I don't really remember exactly how. I think they are water-dwelling monsters, but that's mm-hmm. all I recall. I like to maybe think that the Grindylow is the, the species and uh, Jenny is the individual. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Jenny is one particular Grindylow, though as many authors point out, if there's just one Jenny, she really gets around, right? Because she's mm-hmm. in every stagnant pool and moral pit filled in with water and every dangerous pit of any kind in northwest England. Well, I mean, on one hand, it makes sense that if you know, just about any loathsome pool in uh, in England, if you go back far enough in time, you'll probably encounter some sort of uh, horrific tragedy. One thing I like about Jenny Greenteeth is that for some reason her name actually sounds scary to me, whereas many of these Boggarts and Farron and stuff, they their names are funny, unfortunately. Something has been lost over time. Uh, and so you get like uh, Baum Rapid and the Grizzlehurst Boggart and Clegg Ho Boggart and stuff. <laughs> Well, it's 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 interesting. You have to wonder: Were they given fun names intentionally, or was the or was the the fun name terrifying within context? For instance, uh, take Pennywise the clown. Oh, it's yeah. a pretty sinister sounding name if you have decades of uh, familiarity with Stephen King's It. But was the name initially sinister, or was it initially just a, a ridiculous-sounding clown name? That's a very good point. You know, this will actually go with something that we're going to talk about in a minute. There's a paper I read by uh, a folklorist and sort of like a folk song researcher named Annie Gilchrist who mm-hmm. chronicles these horrific children's songs uh, of like early 20th century England, and they're all about like murder and cannibalism and infanticide and family members eating each other <laughs> and all that stuff. But they're set to these like happy little nursery rhyme tunes. I guess that makes them more creepy. More creepy but also more memorable, I guess. Maybe it, it helps in, in relaying the, uh, the content to young minds. To explore Jenny a little bit more through Higson's letter, I want to read another passage. He writes, quote, A clerical friend whose juvenile years were spent in the vicinity of Stockport, Cheshire, states that he remembers being threatened more than once with Jenny Greenteeth. But in that case, probably as there was no pond near the house, she was said to perch in the tops of the trees, at mm. least after nightfall. His young imagination having been wrought up to the proper pitch, he was led into the garden and bade to listen to the sight of the night wind through the branches, and then told it was the moaning of Jenny Greenteeth. It may be just then disturbed with the nightmare. 
Another clergyman born in Walton Ladale informs me that he remembers an old pit since filled up, but then existing in his native village, and in which it was affirmed lived Jenny Greenteeth, ever on the watch, and therefore woe betided the urchin who ventured too near her domain. Jenny was also known in Manchester some fifty years ago, says an antiquarian friend. Shooter's Brook passes in a culvert under the aqueduct which carries the Manchester and Ashton-under-Lynn Canal over Shore Street, near the London Road Station. At that period, there existed an opening or break left in the culvert, forming a dangerous spot for children to play beside, and yet they often selected it. Their mothers tried to destroy the fascination by stating that Ginny Green teeth laid in wait at the bottom in order to nab children playing there. And this highlights something that I think we'll come back to throughout the episode, which is that it's interesting that children are drawn specifically, it is said, to these dangerous locations, the break in the culvert, the dangerous pond or pit. It's like the children specifically want to go right to where the danger to their lives is the highest, and they have to be warned with another kind of danger to keep them away. Oh, yeah. I, I, I see this this all the time with uh, with my son and his various friends when we, we take them out for walks and, uh, you know, in the nature trails and whatnot. If there's some sort of dangerous little area where it's like a sheer drop off or something, like that's what they're drawn to. And then you have to you have to urge them away and say, like, look, look there's a zero entry, like, uh, you know, creek area up ahead. Let's go play in that. Not this uh, this scary little bog that you've picked out here for yourself. Uh, and indeed, some of the places that that I've seen them drawn to just in the past few weeks are, are very, uh, very much the, the sort of place that a Jenny Green Teeth might be said to to reside in. So, Robert, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Have you ever invoked a fictional monster or supernatural threat in order to scare your child away from a real threat? No, I haven't. Um, that that being said, you know, some people are, are against utilizing, say, Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. We have Santa Claus. We have the Tooth Fairy. We have the Switch Witch for Halloween. Mm -hmm. But beyond these uh, beneficial uh, entities, we have not invoked any other supernatural entities uh, uh, in our our daily practice. I guess we just try and be uh, honest about what dangers are. But, you know, I can understand the temptation here because with with Ginny Greenteeth, you – the, the parent is invoking or creating an an imagined monster, a fantastic uh, lethal monster, instead of having like a frank discussion about the more mundane but equally like traumatic dangers that are involved. Yeah. And sometimes you want to protect them from the truth of, of real danger, like setting down and explaining – the dangers of drowning to a child, like that can be intimidating. You want to shield them from drowning, but you there's also this instinct to shield them from knowledge of that world. And so I can understand the temptation to utilize the fantastic, to create something horrific but fictional as a like almost a gentler way of teaching them the same lesson, uh, which is weird because that can be – that can, I guess, be even more harmful in some respects. Uh, because you're creating this nightmare creature to live in their heads. But I can see where you could reach that point um, with only the best intentions. That's a really interesting point, and we will talk a little bit more about the real dangers of water and drowning later and the psychology of of how this works out. But, um, yeah, 
is it possible that the monster is actually a defanged version of the threat? In a way, yeah. Not a more threatening version of the threat, but putting the threat into a form that feels more comfortable and less depressing. Yes, I, I think so. I think there's a, there's a strong case to be made for that. Now, Robert, if you're all right with it, I'd like to look at a couple of older uh, – a couple more older books and papers that mention Jenny Greenteeth. Uh, one is a book by Percy B. Green called A History of Nursery Rhymes. <laughs> oh, really? Percy B. Green. OK. Yeah, that guy didn't need a pseudonym. <laughs> or maybe that is the pseudonym. Uh, anyway, so uh, I want to quote him later also because he mentions another fascinating story about a water monster. But uh, Green writes uh, in, a mid- in the middle of a section about water spirits. He writes, in England too, the North Country people speak of a river sprite as Ginny Greenteeth and the children dread the green, slimy-covered rocks on the stream's bank or on the brink of a black pool. Uh, wait, I should – I want to throw in this is key too, right? Because – we're talking about the slime-covered rocks themselves. Yes. That, like, that's a key danger. Like, kid's going to slip and fall. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, I had, I had to, to jump in on that. No, that's a very good point. I mean, th- there's actually specific information about real dangers being conveyed in the superstition. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like you see the green-covered rocks. That, that might be a sign that the rock is going to be something you could slip off of, and the child might not know that naturally. But it, you, the child sees it and says, uh-oh, there's green on the rocks. Ginny Greenteeth is about. Huh. See, now that's, that feels a lot more calibrated, where the example we heard earlier about Ginny Greenteeth living in the trees – that felt like the the, the tail uh, had become uh, unhinged, you know? Yeah, well, that's part of the problem with creating superstitions and, and myths about monsters like this is that if you're trying to do it for a specific purpose, like to warn children, myths go wild. Myths yeah. always become untamed. They, they roam loose and they become their own thing. Yeah, I mean, as does illogical fear itself. I mean, even as adults, we can probably think of, of things in our lives where they're not really, you know, they're not monsters, but they're at least a little illogical. And if you don't watch them, if you don't curb them, then, yeah, they can start living in the trees. They go feral. Yeah. Uh, but Green writes that a warning of a Lancashire mother to her child is, quote, Ginny Greenteeth will have the goest onto riverbanks. Hmm. No, I think I already mentioned the uh, the author uh, Annie G. Gilchrist, who has done some work uh, chronicling folk songs discovered in the wild. And she wrote a paper for the Journal of the Folk Song Society in 1919 that uh, is called Note on the Lady Dressed in Green and Other Fragments of Tragic Ballads and Folktales Preserved Among Children. So this is about folk songs sung by children in early 20th century England. And these songs are just messed up. They are, I think I mentioned earlier, they're, they're all about murder, cannibalism, hiding dead bodies in your house. It is fascinating that we often think that children need to be protected from horror. Like I can understand that impulse, but I don't know. This just seems to me like an indication that children naturally gravitate to themes of murder and death and gore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, and they can be rather severe in their uh, invocation of uh, of these ideas. Now, the main song talked about in this paper is uh, is one called The Lady Dressed in Green, which Gilchrist heard sung by a girl named Margaret in a Southport orphanage. And Margaret apparently brought it from a Lancashire workhouse. And Gilchrist goes on to discuss how verses of the, in verses of this song, the lady dressed in green is holding a baby and then she murders her baby with a penknife and then three bobbies come and haul her off to prison. 
And so Gilchrist is talking about the significance of the song and its parallels to other similar children's rhymes, songs, murder ballads, and so forth. And one of the interesting things is the significance of the color green. And this leads her to talk about the color green and its relation to curses and bogeys and evil fairies and spirits. We will talk more about the significance of the color green later. But as for Ginny Greenteeth, Gilchrist writes, quote, of still more sinister import is the color in the case of Ginny Greenteeth, the evil water spirit appearing as the green scum on stagnant water. What claws you in, as country children say, if you go too near or in the obscure and horrible English folktale of the green lady, who appears to be a sort of lamia or vampire, living on or delighting in blood, and perhaps deriving her name and hue from a classic serpent ancestry. But Ginny Greenteeth, and perhaps Green Lady also, is allied with the German water nicks and green hats, the hat appearing to be a tuft of beautiful vegetation growing in the water, who drag down the unwary to the depths, their horrible fate being visible in a fountain of blood which spouts up through the surface of the water. This is interesting, the, the, uh, uh, the mention of, of serpents, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, as I was looking through Carol Rose and looking at various uh, uh, aquatic uh, uh, you know, freshwater, especially uh, monsters, there are a lot of serpents in various uh, beliefs, uh, uh, weird serpents in uh, uh, Native American uh, beliefs as well. And this makes a certain amount of sense, right? Because you will encounter snakes uh, around the water. Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And this would be a very old fear in human culture, but also even predating uh, some of that, you know, just sort of an, an ingrained thing to be afraid of. Yeah. We're all the cat with the cucumber behind us. Yes. Now, I can't move on without mentioning what Gilchrist writes about this other story, the Green Lady story, that may have its origins in some kind of serpent ancestry. Uh, she writes that she's never found a version of the Green Lady folktale in print, but there's, uh, there's a version she heard from a person named Ethel Kidson, and this is how it goes. A little girl took service with the Green Lady. The next morning, after preparing breakfast for her, she called up the stair, Green Lady, Green Lady, come down to your breakfast. But the green lady did not come down. The formula was repeated for dinner and supper, but still she did not appear. At last the little girl went upstairs to the chamber door and, urged by curiosity, looked through the keyhole and saw the green lady dancing in a basin of blood. Ooh. Now this paper is actually worth a look if you want to just go look it up. Uh, to see the absolutely depraved folk songs that children sing. Oh, yes. One of these uh, that you uh, highlighted here, My Mama Did Kill Me. Uh, and it has the, the sheet music with it. I, I'm going to attempt to sing just a little of it uh, with fair warning. I'm not very good at uh, reading sheet music. Uh, but it goes something like this. My mama did kill me and put me in a pie. <laughs> My dada did eat me and say it was I. And then it goes on. My brother and sister did pick my bones and bury them under cold marble stones and bury them under cold marble stones. Uh, we we were emailing with our producer Alex about this, mm -hmm. and Alex was trying to make sense of the line. My dada did eat me and say it was I. Now, one way of reading that could be like, I don't know, the dada knows what the child's flesh tastes like. Like, oh, that's that's him. That's the one I'm eating. Or maybe the dada is saying, no, you're eating yourself. It's you that's doing the eating of you. Mm, I tend to favor the earlier interpretation. But uh, either way, you, you slice it. It's uh, pretty unsettling. <laughs> 
One more paper I came across that mentioned Jenny Greenteeth uh, I, I thought had a, a really kind of sad but fascinating story about something that happened uh, in the 16th century. So this is a paper by Terence R. Murphy called Woeful Child of Parents' Rage, Suicide of Children and Adolescents in Early Modern England, 1507 to 1710 in the 16th Century Journal. And so the author writes that uh, there was a case of an adolescent suicide in uh, Cambridgeshire in 1565 where a, quote, 12-year-old Agnes Adam went horseback riding with her girlfriend and accidentally got her clothes dirty. She came toward home, but fearing that her father would punish her, she rushed to a pond in her father's clothes and drowned herself. And then there's a footnote saying, quote, the coroner's jury swore that Agnes Adams' motives were timor parentium correctionis and metis castigationis. The jury could or would not recognize her hostility toward her parents. How, when, and where she killed herself suggested that she intended to become in death a life-demanding water spirit. The motive was childish and silly. This spirit was a nursery bogey, which adults customarily and cynically use to intimidate children into behaving themselves properly. Little children like Agnes believed in nursery bogeys, but wiser adults did not. This is one instance where adult duplicity and terrorization of children backfired when a child believed her elders' lies enough to act on them in order to get revenge. Well, there we go. We've reached uh, uh, like peak bleakness for this episode. That's a sad story, but it does illustrate something interesting about how, you know, we've been talking about using the idea of a specter or a water hag or a monster to warn children away from real danger. But this tends to show that if if this is really what happened in this case, a child's belief in the existence of this kind of creature could actually cause her to to kill herself, to cause harm to herself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful magic to start messing with, uh, the, the magic of belief. All right, I think we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about other specters of the water. All right, we're back. Robert, tell me about Nellie Longarms. All right, yeah, so these are – I'm going to run through a few different uh, versions of uh, of uh, old Jenny Greenteeth here. And these are all from, uh, again, that, that excellent book by Carol Rose. Uh, if you, you look up Carol Rose and Monsters or Fairies, you'll find her uh, encyclopedias. Uh, they're all still in print, and I, I always highly recommend them. Uh, lots of wonderful illustrations. But, uh, yeah, we have Nellie Longarms, and she's essentially just Jenny Green Teeth with the fangs and the green skin, but with added elongated arms and spidery fingers. Ugh. And you'll find her in the folklore of uh, Derbyshire, uh, Cheshire, uh, Lancashire, Shropshire and Yorkshire. And there's also a nearly identical long-armed uh, monster named, uh, we've discussed this one already, the Grindylo, and it's uh, tied more specifically to Yorkshire. And then there's Peg Powler. This is another creature of the same sort, and this one is just straight-up identical to Jenny Greenteeth. Uh, but she's said to live specifically in the River Tees and belongs to the folklore of the border region between Yorkshire and Durham. Now, Carol Rose also mentions uh, a male incarnation of the same uh, entity named uh, Cuddy Dyer. Whoa. This one's from the folklore of Ashburton in Somerset, England. And he's said to haunt uh, the bridge over the river Yeo, I believe it is, Y-E-O. Yeah, I guess that'd be Yeo. 
And uh, he's an enormous, described as an enormous man with eyes like saucers. And he'd emerge behind you and either pull you into the river or slit your throat and drink your blood. Whoa. And she, uh, she shares the, the following little ditty that's attributed to uh, an old, I believe, blind Ashburton resident in 1972, remembering this is, you know, from, from his childhood. It goes, don't he go down the riverside. <laughs> Cutty Dyer, do abide. Cutty Dyer ain't no good. Cutty Dyer, drink your blood. <laughs> this one didn't come with sheet music, so I don't know if, uh, if it had a, a tune to it or it was just uh, like something you might chant. I kind of like the idea of it just being a, a dirge. Now, water monsters are, have just got to be one of the best kind of monsters, right? Because they, they can play on several different fears at once, right? They can be near you without you knowing it because they're underneath the surface and maybe the water is dark or murky and you can't see down there. But they also play on fears of drowning. Once they get you down into their world, they've got all the power. You're not going to be able to defend yourself much underwater. Uh, so there's a lot of great water monsters around the world, far too many for us to talk about today, right? We, for example, we've talked about the Japanese monster, the kappa, before. That's right, the, the Japanese spirit. It kind of looks like a ninja turtle, but with a, a little uh, pool of water in its skull, and if you get it to bow to you and the, the water uh, spills out, then it loses its vital essence. Yeah, uh, so, so they're all over the world, but since we're talking about Ginny Greenteeth today, I think we can specifically focus on, like, water monsters of the British Isles, right? Yeah. Uh, so another one I know about that Catherine Briggs wrote about is the idea of the Kelpie. Catherine Briggs wrote that Scotland has a Kelpie in every lonely lock. Yeah, the Kelpie is uh, very interesting. This is, this is one um, – I don't know if I read about it before Dungeons & Dragons or if I was initially introduced to it in Dungeons & Dragons. But it's, I think, long been – um, an, an inmate of the the, the monster manual. Mm-hmm. But it's a traditional Scottish monster said to haunt the shores of locks, fords, and fairy points. And it seems to be more robust than a mere nursery bogey, or, it, or at least it evolved beyond that point. Maybe it ended up uh, influencing some of these other uh, entities we've been discussing. Uh, but it, it does have a, a far more robust air of legend about it. It can appear as a shaggy old man, a handsome young man, or most famously, a beautiful black or gray horse. Whoa, that's a departure. Yeah, never as a beautiful woman, though, uh, which uh, it seems unnecessary for it to take that form because the horse form was sufficient to attract women, young men, and children alike. Everybody loves a gorgeous horse. Do they? Do you, when you just see a horse, do you walk up to it? Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, especially back in the day, like a I horse so. like this, it was value. I, I love also the mythic dimension of it. You know, uh, there's this, this kind of idea that maybe more tender individuals, they want to go and meet the animal. Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, harsher individuals, they just see maybe the monetary value or the raw power of the thing. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, yeah, the monetary value is, I guess, like seeing a horse – Without an owner apparent would be what, kind of seeing like a free car somewhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, horse thieves were everywhere, right? So there's kind of this idea that an unattended horse uh, is also, you know, it's something that maybe it belongs to somebody and maybe you're just going to try and steal it. But uh, the idea here is that the creature, the Kelpie, was a, was a portent of drowning in aquatic doom. But if you could force a bridle over it, you could harness the power of the Kelpie and ride it. Whoa. And there are various tales of like individuals who successfully rode the Kelpie and, and what one might do with the harnessed power of the Kelpie, that sort of thing. Well, what would you do? Um, you would basically just, just run amok for a little bit. There are also some tales of like the Kelpie powering water wheels. 
at Mills. Mm-hmm. So there's this interesting idea of like the Kelpie being this uh, the embodiment of just the the raw power and danger of of water. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's well, kind of like a horse, you know, yeah, something yeah. that may be tamed and used if done so respectfully, but that. If if uh, if you step out of line or you don't know what you're doing, you can easily be killed by it. Yeah, and of course, uh, a, a, a brook can gallop the same way a yeah. horse can. Uh, yeah, so we see some more dualities like that in other water creatures. Like one that comes to mind, I think is is would it be the marrow or the miro marrow of Ireland? Yes, there there are some versions of this that are more purely monstrous, and other versions that appear to be less uh, less dangerous, less monstrous. Yeah, like uh, as described by Carol Rose, she gives a pretty friendly account of them, that they're peaceful and they generally get along with humans. They have a little red cap that allows them to shapeshift and walk on land and uh, and that they sometimes uh, breed with humans as well. Uh, but from that Percy B. Green book I mentioned earlier, now who, who knows? This is from the 1800s, so maybe Green's folklore work is is not super rigorous. But Green has a much darker vision of the Miro. He writes, "Quote: The Irish fisherman's belief in the souls cages and the Miro, or man of the sea, was once held in general esteem by the men who earned a livelihood on the shores of the Atlantic. This Miro, or spirit of the waters, sometimes took upon himself a half-human form, and many a sailor on the rock." The coast of Western Ireland has told the tale of how he saw the Miro basking in the sun, watching a storm-driven ship. His form is described as that of a half-man, half-fish, a thing with green hair, long green teeth, legs with scales on them, short arms like fins, a fish's tail, and a huge red nose. He wore no clothes and had a cocked hat like a sugar loaf, which was carried under the arm, never to be put on the head unless for the purpose of diving into the sea. At such times, he caught all the souls of those drowned at sea and put them in cages made like lobster pots. Oh, wow. I I love how this invokes plenty of, you know, much older ideas of uh, aquatic humanoids and even like an old man of the sea. Uh, you know, much like uh, like Proteus himself, but uh, but then there's this weird twist of him essentially taking out lobster uh, pots to catch souls. Well, it strikes me as a perhaps intentionally ironic or blasphemous inversion of the Christian idea of being yeah. a fisher of men. Mm-hmm. The marrow is a fisher of men. Interesting. Now, uh, I also have to mention one of one of my favorite depictions of a of a of a freshwater monster. And that's uh, the illustration, What Came of Picking uh, Jessamine by Henry Justice Ford, an illustration in Andrew Lang's The Gray Fairy Book. Okay, this is a great illustration. Right, and I'm, I'm going to make sure to include this on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com so everybody can check it out. But, it's, uh, but the, the book itself, The Gray Fairy, uh, this is available uh, uh, as well on the web. I think Project Gutenberg has it, and you can, you can get the PDF and scroll through it and read these various uh, uh, fairy tales uh, from uh, throughout Europe and, uh, and, and even beyond, I believe. Uh, but they all have these wonderful um, illustrations as well. But I'll, um, I, I'm going to kind of just roll through the story really quickly. It's an illustration, though, from uh, the Portuguese fairy tale, What Came of Picking Flowers. Okay. And I'm going to try and roll through it real quick for everybody. Basically... A woman's three daughters are lost in the process of picking three different plants, a pink carnation, a rose, and then some jessamine or or jasmine. Their brother, the only survivor uh, in the family, grows up, acquires some magical items, 
and decides to get his lost sisters back. But as it turns out, the first uh, sister was not dead, but locked away in a magic castle, trapped in a, I guess you can just say, a magical marriage arrangement with the king of the birds. Whoa. So he he fixes that, and then he becomes a friend of the king of the birds. Wait, so removes the king of the birds' wife, who is his sister, but also becomes friends with the king of the birds? Well, I'm just going to – just to, to simplify things, I'm just going to say he fixes their magical scenario. Okay. Because the first two sisters here are, um, are, are less important for our purposes here. Okay. But then uh, he goes off and searches, searches for the second sister. And he finds that she too is trapped in a magical marriage to the king of the fish. And here it sounds like there's more of a lady hawk scenario where her husband's a fish half the time and it's – it's uh, kind of annoying, so he manages to fix this scenario as well and becomes a friend of the king of the fish. Is the brother Rutger Hauer? I, and when I was reading, I certainly pictured him like that, like Rutger Hauer but with more of a fishy look to him. And then finally he sets out uh, for the third a sister and find, finds that she was in fact captured by a monster. This monster that we see in this illustration, what came of picking uh, Jessamine, uh, this troll-like entity that grabbed her, came up out of the water and pulled her in. Uh, but this monster has been keeping her prisoner in his castle because she refuses to marry him. So the brother sneaks in and he talks to her about this and he says, look, here's what you need to do. Promise to marry the monster, but only if he tells you how he can die. Tell, make sure that he tells you the secret of his death. Because like a lot of magical creatures, you know, there's only one way, one specific way you can kill it. That is a smart prenup. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, if you're a horrible monster. <laughs> but uh, anyway, this uh, the monster here, he just kind of laughs and says, oh, yeah, I'll tell you because this information will be completely useless, uh, especially to you. And he tells her that there's an iron casket at the bottom of the sea and it contains a magical dove. And that dove's egg, if dashed against the monster's forehead, will kill it. Okay. So uh, – you know, he laugh, has a good laugh at that. And uh, meanwhile, the brother uh, sneaks away. And he goes to the king of the fish and uh, convinces the king of the fish, uh, who, you know, owes him one, to fetch the casket, which he does. Uh, they bring the casket up. And then the bird flies out of the casket. So he asks the king of the birds to grab the dove and bring it back. So the king of the, the birds goes off, gets the dove, brings it back. He ends up with that egg, and he rushes back to where the monster is waiting impatiently for the go-ahead uh, uh, to marry the sister. Uh-huh. And he's becoming you know in, impatient. So I'm just going to read the last little bit from uh, Andrew Lang's uh, uh, version of the story. Quote, At a sign from her brother, she sat down and invited the old monster to lay its head on her lap. He did so with delight, and her brother, standing behind her back, passed her the egg unseen. She took it and dashed it straight at the horrible head, and the monster started, and with a groan that people took for the rumblings of an earthquake, he turned over and died. That's a boss fight for the ages. Yeah, I love it. it, it it's, it's one of those uh, fairy tales that's maybe a little shaky in the early goings, but it totally delivers at the end. I like how the, uh, the alliance with the king of the birds and the king of the fish comes through. Yeah. Yeah, this is one I would have loved to have seen Jim Henson's storyteller oh. uh, bring to life because it's, it's, it's a little bit – it's perfect because it's a little bit weird and it has a, a really hideous monster in it and a kind of whimsical way of defeating it. That is a great story. But I, I want to go back to Ginny Greenteeth and discuss a little bit more about what the Ginny Greenteeth 
lore means, like what it tells us about culture, about our values, our psychology. And so one of the things that's explored is the the importance of the color green in the Ginny Green Teeth lore. Annie Gilchrist in her paper on the lady dressed in green talks about this a good bit. She says that in, in England at the time, the color green is widely believed to be a, quote, ill-omened hue for a garment because it symbolizes the loss of maidenhood or the loss of a lover. Uh, and there's this saying apparently that green is forsaken and yellows forsworn. Huh. Or green can also symbolize being passed over for a younger bride, quote, as in the case of the green stockings or garters in which the elder unmarried sisters had to dance at a younger sister's wedding. But she also writes that, quote, the unluckiness of green clothing must be a very old belief and perhaps had reference originally to a fear of incurring the hostility of the spirits of the woods by borrowing their livery. So the idea there is that the fairies – the fairies are not nice. I mean this is a, a sort of modern thing that we think fairies are mm-hmm. – oh, fairies are sweet. They're fun. Traditionally, I think fairies are, are much more nasty creatures. Oh, yeah. The fairy folk are, are generally best thought of as uh, uh, poorly understood magical alien folk that kind of lived in, live in the folds of realities. Yeah, and so if the fairies dress in green, they can easily be made jealous to see humans dressing in green, apparently. Uh, And so Gilchrist talks about how there's a book called Folklore of the Northern Countries by a writer named Henderson. And Henderson writes, quote, Green, ever an ominous color in the lowlands of Scotland, must on no account be worn there at a wedding. The fairies, whose chosen color it is, would resent the insult and destroy the wearer. Henderson also claims that mothers in the south of England sometimes forbid their daughters from wearing green and avoid even having green furniture in their houses. And also there's a general belief in the folk rhymes of the time that the color green is a sign of hatred when given as a token from someone. So like you would give someone a blue ribbon as a sign of true love, but you'd give someone a green ribbon as a sign of hatred. Hmm. Gilchrist also says that a tailor once told her that his workers hated to see a green garment come into their uh, come into their shop for mending since they believed that there's this rotten curse of the color and it could fall on them as well for uh, for for working on it. And then she also says, of course, that the color green is associated with poison. So I, I think this is interesting because I think of green as a very nice, restful, pleasant color. In fact, I think green is my favorite color. Well, I'm trying to think of uh, of modern uh, individuals associated with green. Like, what's the greenest superhero? I guess like Green Lantern, right? There's green. There's another green. Well, there's Green Goblin, but he's uh, he's bad. What's the Green Hornet? The green Hornet. Uh, I don't know much about Green Hornet. I'm I, not I even sure he wears all that much green. Confession: I don't know that much about superheroes. There's Peter Pan, kind of a <laughs> yeah. superhero, also well, wore green. Well, he, you know, Pan embodies sort of the spirits of of wildness in the forest. He's sort of wearing green because he is a fairy in a way. Oh. Peter Pan is like Pan, you and know, Robin Hood as well. Yeah. These green garments, I think, are associated with the fact that a person is sort of uh, – is of nature, is of the fairy world, is untamed and uncivilized and not not necessarily subject to, say, the Christian authorities. Mm. You know, this would – I think this would be a topic for another day. But then you could, you could also explore the whole realm of the green man oh, or yeah. uh, the green knight from Arthurian legend. Well, yeah, I think th- that would be a great thing to explore. Mm-hmm. And whatever is going on with the color green in, in Gilchrist's time, is is definitely, as far as I can tell, not reflected in the color psychology of 
late 20th and early 21st century scientific journals. And as far as I can tell, most of this research appears to be on Americans. And I can see how color psychology could be hugely influenced by culture, of course. Like, oh, yeah. It, it would really depend on like the culture of the people you're testing. Yeah, I mean, one modern example of this, if I'm remembering the anecdote, uh, uh, the anecdote uh, correctly, um, we've touched on before the importance of red uh, in Chinese culture. Uh, and I believe it has to do with phone, uh, uh, smartphone design. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of something going from red to green being a positive movement and, say, checking off a tab or something. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've, I've, my understanding is correct. Uh, for Chinese markets, you'll often see an inversion of that, like, to go to the, the a positive movement cannot be away from red. It must be towards red because red is the most auspicious color. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, so I think it's pretty clear that color psychology is going to be heavily influenced by culture. I doubt that there is just like a, you know, a universal color association thing across human mm -hmm. beings that's part of our biological brains or something. Oh, yeah. Like uh, I've, I've read before about – uh, interpretations of the color pink mm -hmm. and about how we we fell into this kind of um, you know grotesque hole of just assuming that uh, like pink is a feminine color mm -hmm. uh, whereas you see older traditions where pink was very much a masculine color and ultimately like what is what is the color of uh, fresh wounds on the battlefield you know but pink and red uh, right you know I think of the the I believe pink is the color in Game of Thrones attributed to the the Boltons it's like red and pink are their colors because they delight Flayed in man. flaying uh, human flesh. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, those creeps. Yeah, they're no good. Well, anyway, just what, whatever all the caveats are uh, and how this is influenced by culture and everything, I was poking around in a few studies about color psychology. And generally what it seemed to be – what seemed to be the case to me is that green is not usually viewed by the subjects of these studies as something that's cursed or scary or, or an ill omen. Blue and green are generally seen as more psychologically relaxing, whereas red and yellow are more arousing and more associated with anxiety states. Um, uh, the authors of one study described how uh, green was described – the word green was associated with the quality of being good, whereas like the word yellow was associated with the quality of being bad. Mm. And uh, that blue and blue-green and green were colors that caused subjects to feel more pleasure than colors like yellow and yellow-green. Here's another significant thing in the Ginny Green Teeth folklore, and it is the significance of a particular green plant – so I want to talk about a paper called Limna Minor and Ginny Green Teeth by a botanist, an English botanist named Roy Vickery, who's apparently written a good deal about the folklore of plants. And this was published in the journal Folklore in 1983. And th this was a great paper about Ginny Green Teeth because he's picking up on the work of people like Catherine Briggs. And Vickery wants to give a fuller account of Ginny Green Teeth and explore the relationship between Ginny and this water plant known as lesser duckweed or limna minor. Now, Limna Minor, you've probably seen before. I, I added a picture to our uh, our outline here, Robert, so you can take a look at it. But Limna Minor, the duckweed, is a is a green plant that floats on the top of stagnant water in ponds and pools, and it has very small leaves and can end up looking like a flat mat of green on top of the water. If it collects enough, it can make a watery surface look just sort of like a flat putting green or something. Yeah, it's like the hard foam cap atop an old school cappuccino. Oh, you know? 
uh, except green. It totally is. So uh, so Vickery writes that stories of Ginny Green Teeth are still told around the Liverpool area. And Liverpool is, of course, northwest England near Lancashire. And he writes, quote, Usually she's considered to be a bogey who inhabits quiet pools and drags venturesome children down into the depths. Sometimes she's considered to be the harmless water plant, lesser duckweed, and occasionally she can be found far away from any pool. And in his 1839 book of uh, book The Flora of Liverpool, author T.B. Hall notes that, quote, moral pits abound on both sides of the Mercy, which is a river going through that area, uh, and are caused in most instances by excavating clay for the purpose of making bricks. Before these pits are a year old, they are filled with aquatic plants. And specifically, of course, that plant is generally lesser duckweed. This small green plant that floats on the top of the water has these little root tendrils that extend down into the water but can look like this mat from above. And Vickery writes, quote, In summer, such pools are frequently covered with a dense mat composed of thousands of floating duckweed plants so that their surfaces appear solid. Lesser duckweed is one of the world's smallest flowering plants, each plant measuring 1.5 to 4 millimeters in diameter with tiny insignificant flowers and a thread-like root which may reach several centimeters in length. Obviously, any child who attempted to walk across a pond covered with duckweed would soon find himself in serious difficulty. And so, of course, this creates an interesting association that for some children, apparently, Ginny Greenteeth was not a name for a magical monster, but was literally the name for the duckweed itself. And Vickery quotes the experience of a woman who recounted her childhood memories uh, about Ginny Greenteeth to him in December of 1980. She starts by talking about the area where she was brought up, and then she says, quote, It was and still is largely a farming area. And many of the fields contain pits, never ponds, which I believe are old marl pits. Some of them have quite steep sides. Ginny was well known to me and my contemporaries and was simply the green weed, duckweed, which covered the surface of stagnant water. Children who strayed too close to the edge of these pits would be warned to watch out for Ginny green teeth, but it was the weed itself which was believed to hold children under the water. There was never any suggestion that there was a witch of any kind there. Hmm. And then another first-hand account that Vickery quotes, quote, As a child in the countryside of Cheshire, I heard the name Ginny Greenteeth given to the bright green water plant that lies on the surface of stagnant ponds. The minute leaves are rather like tiny teeth. And imagine that if one fell into the pond, the green scum-like plant would close over one's head, thus Ginny Greenteeth had got you. Now, that's an interesting development there. There's still this predatory aspect being imputed to Jenny Greenteeth, but she's not a hag. She's not a witch. It's the plant that kills you. It lures you into the water by making it look like a solid surface. And then when you fall in, the children imagined this plant would close over top of you like a, like a membrane sealing you under the water. Interesting. So we kind of have a... Uh, they're meeting us halfway between uh, like actual realistic fear and uh, an outlandish monstrous invention. Right, because there's no indication that duckweed will actually close over you and prevent you from getting out of the water. Right. But it can be dangerous because it can make a, a deep pit of water look like a solid surface that you could just run straight into. So one question is, did this association between the Ginny Green Teeth 
monster and duckweed begin early or late? Like, was Ginny a pre-existing bogey figure who later came to be identified with duckweed, or was she always a creature of the weed? And I think the answer is not quite clear. Vickery cites one scholar who wrote that the association had to be recent since he believed Ginny, quote, had descended from the water spirits of Gothic mythology whose great seductive beauty was somewhat marred by their green teeth. And, of course, this makes me think about a principle we've talked about several times uh, from that book, uh, The Demon Lovers by Walter Stevens. Yeah, in uh, Demon Lovers, Witchcraft, Sex, and Crisis of Belief, uh, he he examines a number of different texts uh, associated with with witchcraft persecution, witchcraft uh, uh, theory of the day. Uh, And one of the texts that he looks at is The Witch or On the Illusions of Demons by Gian Francesco Pica del Mirandola. Uh, who died in 1533. Now, Pico was the nephew of the influential philosopher Giovanni Pico, and Pico the Younger here was was, in, was an influential thinker of the day as well. He was a, an intellectual who championed, uh, quote, the truths of Christianity against the crescendo of skepticism that he felt Aristotelian science fostered by encouraging an empirical attitude toward the world. So Stevens wrote that he, quote, brilliantly understood the way to fight skepticism was with skepticism itself. Hmm. So in other words, Pico was an enemy of reason who used his intellectual gifts to champion religious worldview over skepticism. His works enforced quite literally uh, the idea of a demon-haunted world. Uh-huh. But uh, Pico, uh, in his work, he describes a, a conversation between four individuals, including the Inquisitor de Costes, uh, which uh, means judge who, quote, helpfully explains that all the trial records of the Inquisition reveal that the devil can create a nearly perfect facsimile of the human body, but never can get the feet to come out right. <laughs> never the feet. God makes the feet come out inversos et uh, preposteros so that people will know that they are in the presence of a devil and not be fooled into thinking that he is human. Thus, they have no excuse for sinning. The corollary, which Decastes does not state, is equally important. Imperfect feet are an infallible way of recognizing demons, so we should not fear that witches mistake ordinary humans for demons. <laughs> so perhaps, you know, Jenny works along similar lines or, or plays upon these trends in storytelling. Right. Well, I think the idea here would not necessarily be Jenny herself, but would be the creatures that this scholar is saying that Jenny descends from. Yes. The idea of the green teeth comes to us from the fact that there would be these seductive water spirits who might – they might be beautiful to lure men into the water and drown them. But like like the witches that uh, DeCostes is talking about here would have one feature that would be a tell that would let you know that uh, God has not allowed this demon to be a perfect mimicking of human beauty. And that tell is that she's got disgusting green teeth. Well, and from a storytelling standpoint, it's always great to have that, that little uh... – that, that little detail at the last minute uh-huh. that clues everyone in. Oh, it's not a woman, it's a demon, etc. cetera. Uh, incidentally, this also re- reminded me of a line from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, where uh, uh, it, it's written, quote, When you meet anything that is going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. <laughs> Sound advice. Sound violent advice. Uh, Sound advice, Clive. From Narnia. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break and we'll come back. We're going to discuss duckweed a little bit more. We're going to discuss Ginny Green Teeth a little bit more and then we're going to close out. 
All right, we're back. So Vickery also in his paper cites other firsthand accounts that the association with duckweed also also goes the other way. It's not just that Ginny Greenteeth is a nickname for the lesser duckweed. It's that lesser duckweed could be a sign that Ginny Greenteeth is lurking underneath. Uh, in an interview with a 34-year-old woman in 1980, uh, the interview goes, quote, I remember as a very small child being told by my mother to stay away from ponds as Ginny Greenteeth lived in them. However, I only recall Ginny living in ponds which were covered in green weed of a type which has tiny leaves and covers the entire surface of the pond. The theory was that Ginny enticed little children into the ponds by making them look like grass and safe to walk on. As soon as the child stepped onto the green, it, of course, parted, and the child fell through into Ginny's clutches and was drowned. The green weed then closed over, hiding all traces of the child ever being there. This last point was the one which really terrified me and kept me well away from the ponds, and indeed, my own children have also been told about Ginny, although ponds aren't as numerous these days. As far as I know, Ginny had no known form due to the fact that she never appeared above the surface of the pond. So here the mat on the surface of the pond is – it's like a trick that Ginny Greenteeth uses. Mm. She is a hag. She is a witch. But she uses the duckweed to lure people to her. But then also, interestingly, Vickery mentions that Ginny would sometimes get dislocated from her home turf. Like children who grew up in Liverpool recount how they believe Ginny Greenteeth didn't live in ponds or pools but in churchyard cemeteries and that she would reach out and drag children into the graveyard and then into burial vaults. And then here's a really interesting one. In the 1940s, parents in South Cheshire told children that Ginny would get them if they ventured too close to the railroad tracks. So a Ginny Ginny Greenteeth of the, the industrial world. Now, that is interesting because it seems like the the idea that the train could run you over, that seems far more overt. Like, do you really need to invoke mythology uh, to, to, to make that that uh, that threat real? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we, we can come back to that at the very end. But, you know, one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is the idea that uh, that water's edge attack strategies are actually a pretty common ambush tactic of some predators, right? Oh, yeah. Well, let's let's discuss a few of them here because uh, some of them are, are, are really impressive. Uh, I think the most obvious one, and maybe it's just most obvious to us because uh, we watch enough nature documentaries uh, and or uh, terrible movies, but uh, uh, croco- crocodilian species, uh, the, their attack strategies. Uh, so crocodilians, you know, everything from uh, alligators and crocodiles to uh, more, uh, you know, le- to lesser known creatures uh, such as the caiman. Uh, crocodilians are specialized in hunting both in the water and at the water's edge. So they're, they're ambush predators. They wait for prey to come close such as near the water to drink and then they lash out with amazing speed. Uh, and there's a, a, some fabulous nature documentary, documentary footage out there of, uh, for instance, Nile crocodiles attacking wildebeest that are either drinking or preparing to cross uh, bodies of water during migration. And much like the stories of Jenny Greenteeth, one of the things about a lot of crocodilian attack strategies is that they get you into their world, into the water world that they control. Mm-hmm. So like if you're just out on land, you might easily be able to get away from a crocodile. But – if the crocodile can get up close to you and can snatch you and get you into the water and do this thing that's often referred to as the death roll, this twisting yes. motion in the water that 
breaks your bones, that disorients you, and then can allow it to drown you in the water before it feasts on you. Um, yeah, th this is a, a way that it gets you into its domain. It's like Ginny Greenteeth pulling you down underneath the mat of the duckweed. I have to admit I was nearly pulled in uh, and overtaken by uh, just research uh, related to crocodilians because I ran across um, – uh, a paper titled On Terrestrial Hunting by Crocodilians by Vladimir uh, Dinitz. Uh, and, and he points uh, you know, out that purely terrestrial attacks, uh, even on humans, are documented. So we're talking about attacks that take place not in the water, not at the water's edge, but outside of the water. Now, mm -hmm. I don't mean like, you know, you know, downtown New York City or anything. <laughs> I'm talking about area near the water. We wouldn't rule anything out. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, it, uh, but, but they do occur. Uh, for, and uh, this is a particularly interesting. Uh, you have the Cuban crocodile, which apparently is, is the most terrestrial of, uh, of, of today's crocodilian species mm -hmm. in that it uh, is more adept at, uh, at, at, at uh, moving about and, uh, and even hunting uh, out of the water. And uh, it's thought that the, the Cuban crocodile's ancestors may have uh, used pack hunting behavior to take down giant ground sloths Whoa. in the past. Yeah. Giant ground sloths. Yeah. So it's just, uh, again, just a, a, a tantalizing tidbit that maybe we can come back to in a later episode, the idea of pack hunting Cuban crocodile uh, ancestors. So that would be the, what, the megatherium? Yeah. The, those things look like, I wouldn't imagine anything would mess with them. Yeah. But if you have enough, uh, enough uh, land crocs, then who knows? <laughs> now, another really impressive organism to talk about here is the archer fish. And this one also is kind of a superstar of certain nature documentaries. So it's a family of fish that's evolved an amazing means of hunting prey. Uh, they, they shoot a highly specialized stream of water at insects on branches that are overhanging the water. Mm. And they spit this stream in such a way that High, the higher velocity rear portion of the stream catches up to the lower velocity front portion of the stream right before it hits the target, jamming everything into a glob, just one solid glob of water. So it just really pops. It's like a – It's like it, a water bomb. Yeah, so it's just a water bomb that hits them and then knocks the insect off into the water where it can get them. Uh, it uses exceptional eyesight to aim as well as a, an ability to compensate for the refraction of light as it passes through the air-water interface, which is impressive in and of itself. Right. And then it's also interesting to note that they're, they're not born dead eyes. They actually have to practice and learn by observing other fish in their school. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You so, don't usually think of fish as learning very much. I know. They, they, these are uh, from several different angles. These are fascinating uh, creatures. Uh, they also use their water jet attack underwater, and they've been observed uh, jumping out of the water to catch uh, prey as well. Now, uh, their, their jet of water, it has a functional range of something like uh, one to two meters or three feet, three inches to six feet, seven inches. But they can shoot it farther than that, but it just uh, doesn't have particularly good aim beyond that point. You know, another example I would like to mention is the fact that uh, we all know seals and sea lions can be fearsome predators mm -hmm. themselves, right? But sometimes, of course, they have to flee a more powerful flesh gobbler, which is the orca, the killer whale. Oh, goodness. And this is another uh, superstar of nature documentaries. Yes. Now, normally, if you're a seal, a sea lion, the best way to escape a killer whale is going to be what? Swim full speed for shore, get onto the beach or the rocks so the orca can't reach you. Right. Then you can just lay around all day and 
for the most part, nothing's going to mess with you. Right. I'm thinking of the, you know, the swim Charlie swim scene in Jaws, right? The shark <laughs> won't follow you onto the beach. Right. There are no land sharks. But one of the strangest attack strategies I've ever seen in nature is the way that the orca has learned to defy this logic. Sometimes orcas will deliberately beach themselves to catch prey that has escaped onto land. For example, the orcas of the Valdez Peninsula on the Atlantic coast of Argentina are known for doing this. They will chase a seal or sea lion that's on the ground or in the in the shallow water like the surf or just up on the rocks and the orca will rocket toward the water line crash over it onto land, snag a seal, and then flop around and slide back into the water, dragging the seal with them. It's an impressive and just awesome sight. And and it's like the ultimate nightmare, right? There are so many just unbelievably powerful predators in the water that you always think like, well, at least I'm safe on land. (laughs) (laughs) And to be clear, the target here uh, is the seal. So Uh yes, humans are safe uh, from uh, beach-based orca attacks. Right, at least generally. I wouldn't rule out that it could never happen. Well, but I would not lose any sleep over it. Right. (laughs) Yeah, nothing to go about your life worrying (laughs) about. Uh, But hey, let's go to another similar example. Robert, I want you to put yourself in a a city in France. Imagine yourself wandering along the River Tarn in southern France in the commune of Albi. Like a lot of urban areas, Albi has its resident population of pigeons. We all know about city pigeons. Mm -hmm. And they're probably out there getting fat off the bread that falls off the edges of cafe tables and stuff like that. The winged rats of civilization. Mm -hmm. Now, in the river dwells a mighty leviathan, the European catfish. The European catfish, Silurus glanus, is not, uh, not native to this river, but it is this invasive species that has taken over rivers in, in, uh, all throughout Europe. And it is Europe's largest freshwater fish. I believe it's the third largest freshwater fish in the world. And these things get big. I've read like a meter to even a meter and a half long, and they are thick. Now, I want to remind everybody that the, the catfish is generally regarded as a, a bottom feeder. Yeah. Um, I imagine you, you you haven't grown up in Tennessee like I, like I have. There were a lot of stories of the catfish that grow uh, gigantic in the, the like the depths near um, uh, dams, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And there weren't a lot of stories about them being. I mean, I guess there were occasionally stories about them, uh, you know, biting or whatnot. But for the most part, yeah, they're down there in the deep. They're not really concerned with the surface until you catch one on your reel and you bring it up. Right. So you're in Albi. You're going along the river and uh, the River Tarn, and you notice the pigeons are hanging out on a little gravel island to clean themselves by the water. And you, of course, also see these invasive catfish, the monstrous catfish floating around at the water's edge. And then suddenly, what you see is that one of these leviathans lashes out of the shallows, partially beaches itself, clamps its jaws down on a pigeon's head or leg or wing, and then drags the bird down into the deeper part of the water to feast. Oh. There was a study in 2012 in PLOS-1 that uh, that characterized this behavior by uh, Julian Cucuroset, Stephanie Bulletro, uh, Frederick Azamar, Arthur Compine, Matthew Guillaume, and Frederick Santoul. And the authors characterized the catfish in this case as freshwater killer whales. Oh, that's good. Now, they noticed something interesting. 
only moving pigeons were attacked. And the catfish that hunted pigeons would tend to hold their, you know, those whiskers catfish have Mm -hmm. on their faces, the barbells. They would tend to hold those erect while they were hunting. And this led the authors to conclude that the catfish were probably hunting by sensing vibrations in the water. But a fascinating question, how did this hunting strategy come about? How did the how did the catfish start going from just, you know, normal aquatic feeding behaviors to saying, yeah, I'll jump out of the water into the air onto the land that would probably kill me, grab a pigeon and drag it in? How did it decide to become Jenny Greenteeth? I'm guessing it probably started off as a like a crime of opportunity, right? <laughs> Yeah, but it's always – I mean, it's just hard to imagine like how behaviors like that originate. What? How did it start happening? Well, it, it makes me think of our old friends, uh, the squirrels, the skugs and uh, their, their, uh, pre- their predatory side. Mm-hmm. At what point does a creature that is not – that is clearly not evolved for such behavior begin, uh, you know, dipping its little toes into that? Area? Right. Uh, yeah, but then again, when you think about it, I mean, it is a great opportunity, right? Because mm-hmm. the water's edge is sort of a perfect ambush point, as the crocodilians have caught on to. The attacker can get so close to the prey while remaining hidden, just like Ginny lurking under the duckweed. And and this emphasizes that there are actually multiple reasons that water's edge fears are not just, you know, psychologically salient, but they're entirely justified in many ways, especially when you're talking about children. Yeah, this this really brings us back to what we talked about at the very beginning, the the idea that there is this this real and and perhaps you know very honest reason for one, for crafting these myths or at least embracing these these folkloric beliefs and then passing them on to children. Uh, you know, and I definitely want to be sensitive about this because accidental drowning deaths are are a very serious matter and a traumatic matter, especially when it concerns children. Mm-hmm. I've known people personally affected by tragedies like this, and it, and it is it's difficult to find words to even even talk about them. You know, there's just such a such a, a you know a, a bleak traumatic experience to even contemplate. Uh, and I know that some of you out there listening to this episode, you may have lost people in this matter. And I, I do want to drive home that you do have our, our sympathies, even as we discuss the, you know, the human myth-making that builds up around the truth. Uh, but but let's, let's stop just to consider some of the, the modern stats about accidental drowning. Uh, according to the CDC, from 2005 to 2014, there were an average of 3,536 fatal unintentional drownings, non-boating-related, annually in the United States, about 10 deaths per day. An additional 332 people died each year from drowning in boat-related incidents. About one in five people who die from drowning are children 14 and younger. And for every child who dies from drowning, another five receive emergency department uh, care for non-fatal submersion injuries. This is worth uh, noting here as well because if you haven't – if you don't have any firsthand account – with drowning or you're not trained as a lifeguard, you might not realize that it's it's not just this definite line between drowning and almost drowning, between, uh, you know, dying in the water and surviving. Uh, The uh, CDC uh, page points out that uh, more than 50 percent of drowning victims treated in emergency departments require hospital treatment and non-fatal drowning injuries can still cause severe brain damage that result in long-term disabilities. I mean, this kind of thing emphasizes, and we should be clear that these are modern statistics. These are based on a time where I think it is more common for people to know how to swim 
like to have been taught how to swim. Right. Um, that this is probably not referring as often to people living in places where it's common for there to be stagnant pools that are covered in a mat that make them look like grass. Um, I mean, so so yeah, th- this is different circumstances even, but it highlights how dangerous water can be. If you're an adult who knows how to swim and you don't think about dangers to children, you just really might not realize how real of a threat a standing body of water is. So the myth-making of Jenny Greenteeth as a, as a warning to keep children away from the duckweed ponds and the marl pits filled in, it seems like a very, very reasonable thing to do in a way. I mean, I'm not necessarily advocating making up fictional monsters to scare children, but you can see why people did it. And so Ginny is often used educationally as a safety warning. The monster is invoked to keep children from playing near dangerous bodies of water or in other contexts that are dangerous, like around railroad tracks, like Vickery talked about. But here's this interesting part we were talking about earlier that I feel like we still haven't necessarily solved. The thing you're warning children to stay away from is real-life threatening danger. And in order to get the message across, you have to create a fictional, supernatural, life-threatening danger. Children are obviously motivated by self-preservation or the fictional, supernatural, life-threatening danger wouldn't work. But for some reason, some risks to their body safety and their survival don't seem to be as salient or as as effective as others. And apparently mothers and fathers are wagering that children are just not likely to obey warnings about the risks of deep water that says you could fall in and drown. They think children are more likely to obey a warning that says the green lady will get you. So why is the fictional threat more compelling and more useful than the actual threat? Now, I, I come back again to what I said earlier about, about how I feel like the the monster is actually still a sanitized version of the threat. Yeah. Um, and, and isn't it interesting, too, that we see these examples where you're personifying the threat. You're turning the threat into a humanoid entity, but then you're making it an old woman, mm-hmm. which also feels like a sani- uh, like you're sanitizing it. Because you're not making it into uh, a man, which if you look at the if you look at the the, the chances of a um, of an individual posing a a significant bodily and certainly a you know, lethal threat to a child, mm-hmm. that individual is far more likely to be male. Yeah, um, you know, without certainly getting into uh, into stranger danger and the more uh, you know inflated aspects of this fear. But uh, but you've 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 chosen. There seems to be a, there's an active uh, choice here in making Jenny Greenteeth, making it a, an older female entity instead of a male entity, which would again I think bring it too close to horrific real life situations that you're trying to avoid in crafting the myth. I think I agree with that. Though then again, I wonder if this is this is a sort of modern American cultural bias on our part that makes us feel this way. I mean, we might not feel like old women are necessarily less dangerous if we say we're in a context in which we believed witchcraft was real. That's true. That's true. If yeah, we're, we're taking this and we're we're, we're steeping it in uh, the age of witchcraft persecution and, and the the an age in which uh, which tales of uh, of hags and witches are, uh, are are found everywhere. Then again, a lot of this is taking place in say the early twentieth century. In which case, I don't know how many people in north northwest England in the early twentieth century thought witchcraft was real. But then again, it wasn't that far removed from from witchcraft uh, persecution. Again, we have to remember that witchcraft persecution was 
was a was not a, a medieval um, uh, practice. It was post medieval, so yeah, early modern. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, before we, we close out here, I do want to quickly reference another green entity that I forgot to mention that I should have mentioned that I, I, I can only imagine is based in part on some of these ideas. And that is the hitcher from the mighty Boosh, uh, the, the green skinned, uh, hag like male cockney character. I'm not familiar. Oh, you haven't? He sings the song about eels? No, no, oh, I don't well. know. Uh, well, those of you out there who've watched the mighty Boosh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. If not, um, do a do a search for for Boosh and Hitcher, and uh, I think you'll be delighted with what you find. I thought you were going to say Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> no, Ch- Cheddar Goblin is a more recent phenomenon, but uh, but I think probably unrelated to this particular fairy tale. Well, Robert, I have had massive fun with this epic exploration of water hags and Ginny Green Teeth. Yeah, this has been a good one. Uh, there was a, there's there's a lot more beneath the depths than one might uh, think. You know, you don't know how deep that pond really is. All right, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, our other October offerings, uh, October offerings from Halloween's past, you want to head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of them. That's where you'll find links out to our various social media accounts. That's where you'll find a tab at the top of the page for our store where you can pick up cool merchandise with our logo on it, uh, some stuff tying in to uh, various episodes that we've done. It's a great way to support the show uh, by buying just a little bit of that merchandise. Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, to uh, let us know a topic you'd like us to cover in the future, or just to say hi, let us know uh, how you found out about the show, where you listen from, who you are, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.